called Can We Still Believe the Bible? Can we? I mean, all of the, 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 the archaeological findings, all the new technology that we have, all the new, all the new knowledge and wisdom and, and enlightened minds we have in the world today, um, what is the conclusion of all of this, uh, all of this study of, of biblical texts through the years? Uh, can we still come to the conclusion that the Bible is actually the Word of God and that it can have and should have authority in your life and in mine? Because there's a lot of people out there in our world today who question that. Um, you don't have to, to search on the internet for very long to be confused about what the truth is and, and what can we believe. I mean, honestly, um, you know... I I just really get tired of the internet. Honestly, I get really tired of Facebook and sharing and things that aren't true and are partially true and maybe it looks like a good story and we think it might be true, but we don't take a minute or two or three to do at least a little bit of research and see if maybe this is, you know, maybe, I mean... The same thing can happen about the study of the Word of God. Um, if we're not careful who we're reading and what we're reading, we can be confused and just throw up our hands and say, well, it, I guess it's just not really, the truth is not really to be known. But it is. And, and we're going to find through this series, and I'm going to try and be as short as I can this morning, as we look at where the Bible came from. Where did the Bible come from? As we hold it in our hands today, where, where did this come from? You know, sometimes I think we get the picture that, that God gave us the Bible in the same way that he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That Moses went up on a mountain and God said, here they are. And he gave them to Moses all at once and he came down and said, here's the Ten Commandments that God has given me. And sometimes I think we think that that's how the Bible came to be. That's how the canon that we call the canon of Scripture came to be in our hands. And that's not how it happened. And sometimes when somebody asks us a question about that, we, we don't know what to answer. We don't know what to say. Well, it just is. I mean, it's the Word of God. That's what I've always been taught. How do we answer somebody that, that is intellectually, honestly asking the question, where did the Bible come from? Because there are people out there who say that the Bible was, was thrown together by political powers in order to leverage and control the people in a particular nation or country. Um, there are a lot of people who would say that about um, about the New Testament. Well, that was just, you know, um, Constantine put that together. He ordered that put together and then, uh, and, and they only included stuff in there that would help them leverage and control the people. But that's not true. Um, Constantine ordered a bunch of Bibles to be copied and distributed among the country, but he had nothing to do with establishing what books would be included in the canon of Scripture, which we have before us today. Uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary says this about Scripture. Scripture invariably in the New Testament denotes that definite collection of sacred books regarded as given by inspiration of God, which we usually call the Old Testament. So in the New Testament, every time the word Scripture is used, it's referring back to the Old Testament. There honestly isn't any 
debate about whether the Old Testament is the word of God or not. It's, it, it, there, there isn't any honest intellectual discussion about the Old Testament. Now, some of you, when I say that, the, the term apocrypha comes to your mind, and I'm going to touch just a little bit on that here in a few moments, but I want to read to you from the New Testament writers what they said about the Old Testament canon. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.15, And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, it's, it's understood that the canon of the Old Testament, that, that the Old Testament that we have right here in front of our hands was closed in like the, the last century B.C. There were no more books being added. There were, that was, they, this was the word of God to the Jews, the, the Hebrews. This is it, the Old Testament. And then we have Jesus come on, the Son of God. And when he talks about Scripture and when he teaches it and when he preaches it, what is he using? The Old Testament canon. So as I look at the Old Testament, if, if Jesus doesn't say, well, this doesn't belong, this doesn't belong, and this doesn't belong, and he confirms, not only confirms, but quotes and teaches from it, it's obvious to me it's the Word of God. No, uh, there, there really is, from what I have been reading, there may be people that want to debate it, but according to the scholars, there is no more debate Uh, John 20, verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture, from the Old Testament, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Um, Galatians 3.22, Paul says, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. 2 Peter 1.20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretations of things. In other words, all those who wrote the Old Testament books were under the inspiration of God. And if they ever wrote anything on their own, they were, they were generally immediately found to be wrong. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And then Jesus again in Matthew 22, verse 40 says, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Those were closed. They were combined. They were put in book form, scroll form, before Jesus even came on the scene. And that's what Jesus preached and taught from. So when it comes to the Old Testament... To the canon of the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, this is it. This is the word of God, and it's true. And then he says something to the effect of, and it's being fulfilled in me right before your eyes. And then we see in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus' life and the things that he taught and the things that he said while he was here on earth, how, how his actions and, and, and the miracles that he did are fulfilling those things which were prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, 
Some people might want to say, yeah, but he he knew the Old Testament, so he was just living his life to fulfill that, right? Yeah, he convinced the Jews and the Romans to crucify him. And and then, of course, you know, the sun being blocked out for three hours and 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 this, you know, that he just made all of that happen somehow um, as a human being. No. It was fulfilled in him as savior of all. Some of the, main, the, the claims that are made today, as I already briefly mentioned, uh, are that it was put together for political reasons, that it was an attempt by the Roman government to control and oppress people. Now, unfortunately, Christianity in its history has at times combined politics and religion and, and with, with some very, very horrible, horrible consequences. Um, you know, I, I think of, of how even today, People misuse scripture to, to um, promote a political view or, or, a, uh, or an ideology, or they, they twist it a little bit to do the same. And there were atrocities done in the name of Christianity, but the canon of scripture was not put together by those people. Um, there's far too much writing that is critical of the leadership of Israel in the Old Testament to have been put together by those that were in power for political reasons. There, there is way too much. I mean, look, if, if you're wanting to promote your government and pro- promote your people group, you're not going to include in the Bible things that are against that. You're just not going to do it. How, how many times do you read an autobiography that is all good, blow and smoke and lovely things about a certain person, and in the back of your mind you're going, well, I know that, that, that some of that's true, but not all of that's true. You know, if, if, if we want to promote ourselves, there's, there's way too much. It, it's, it's the Hebrew scriptures, and, and it's the Bible that, that Jesus and the disciples used. It's the scripture that Philip used to, to bring to salvation the Ethiopian eunuch on the side of the road, the Old Testament. And then he was baptized. It's what Jesus used. And the Old Testament, as we have it now, was canonized in the 5th century B.C. It was closed. No more books added. No more, no, more, no more histories added. That was it. And God has, in amazing ways, taken care of it. Now, there is an issue when it comes to the Old Testament surrounding a few books that are referred to as the Apocrypha. Without going into too much detail this morning, uh, the Apocrypha was not included by the Jews in the canon of the Old Testament. In fact, not even a trace. One other significant finding that came from the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran is that some portion of every book of the Hebrew canon, but one, and that was the book of Esther, a fragment was found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there were, there were some fragments of the Apocrypha that were found, but only of three of the Apocryphal books, which doesn't show the exact parameters of the Hebrew canon, but it certainly does limit it to a more, a, a more limited number. And finally, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, um, the New Testament quotes from a broad section of the Old Testament, but it never once quotes from the Apocrypha. Not one time. Not one time.
And it's also noteworthy that none of the apocryphal books claim to be God's word. As many books of the Hebrew scriptures do, and in addition, many books of the Apocrypha have historical inaccuracies or theological inconsistencies in them, so they were not included in the faithful canon of the Old Testament. Now, there are similar factors when it comes to the New Testament. Many times the writers of the New Testament understood that what they were writing and what others were writing was under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When they put pen to paper, it was under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised them when he left. I will send you one. Peter recognizes Paul's letters in this way. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he said, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Jesus commended the disciples to preach and teach all that I have commanded in chapter 28 of the book of Matthew, and that is exactly what they did. They preached it, they taught it, and they wrote it down. So the disciples and others wrote and recorded. They taught, they sent their letters, and then one day, those letters were combined with the Old Testament to make what we now have in our hands today called the Holy Bible. And by the 4th century A.D., there was no more debate. It was closed and it was complete And as the Bible was being put together and canonized, each letter, each gospel was closely scrutinized to be sure of its truth and its inspiration. And I have no doubt that God oversaw this, not only when it was being put together in one one text for us, but as each individual one was written, and even so today. The amazing thing to think about is is I think there were a lot of atheists and, and, and people critical of Scripture who were excited when, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. And we have all of these early, early, early texts of, of the Bible. We're finally going to prove that it's all screwed up and wrong. And it did just the opposite. Text after text, fragment after fragment was nearly identical. Now, if that's not a miraculous thing, even in our own culture of, of technology and, and being able to copy things, stuff gets messed up in a matter of weeks. I mean, Ashton Kutcher is getting his car fixed in just about every town these days. Amazing how it was all preserved. Now, I want to just really quickly, like I'm going to take five minutes to do this. Um, there, there are three major criteria that, that, are, uh, that, are u- that were used to determine whether uh, uh, an apostolic letter should be a part of the canon of the New Testament or not. Okay, there, there actually were are, are five or six, and some of those... Um, they're described in Dr. Craig Blomberg's book called Can We Still Believe the Bible, which is, which is what we're basing this series on. Um, a lot of his research, um, and, and if you know anything about others, um, the, the book Case for, for Christ um, 
Um, Lee Strobel interviewed Dr. Craig, Craig Blomberg as one of his sources for, for, for investigating the truth of, of the Word of God as he was going through the process of coming to Christ, or he, he was hoping to, to disprove it, in fact. Um, so there's this book, Can We Still Believe the Bible? If you want to pursue this even further and you want to know more about it, um, go online. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's $12 for the Kindle version, and it's like $14 for the hardback um, I kind of needed it immediately, so I did the Kindle thing, but the, but the, the softback, the, the actual book, is probably the better deal. Um, that's Baker Publishing. And then um, uh, another really good book that I would suggest to you, if I can find, um, is called... <sighs> Here it is. It's called The Canon of Scripture. It's by F.F. F. Bruce, and it was published by InterVarsity Press. The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. So there's three of, of the five or six things that they would use to scrutinize a, a, a text. There's three, of, three things. The first is apostolicity. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but apostolicity. Um, and apostolicity says, does not mean that every book was written by an apostle, um, by one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, but rather that they were written during the apostolic age before the last of the 12, most likely John, had died. So all of the books that we have in the New Testament were written in the time and reviewed and, and distributed among the Christian church within the apostolic age. So if any of the 12 disciples who walked and talked were eyewitnesses with Jesus thought this wasn't true or this wasn't right, they would have said, and it would have been axed from, from the community of the church. That's what apostolicity is. The second cr- criteria is this. It's Catholicity. Now, this has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. This is the, the term Catholic as an adjective, simply meaning Universal. So were the books accepted into the New Testament, were those books books that were distributed widely throughout the, the, uh, the community of Christianity? If it was a text that was only used in one little corner of, of, of a country, and they said, yes, this is, this is the word of God, and, and this is true, and it has authority in our life, it wouldn't even be considered. Catholicity means that believers throughout the parts of the world to which Christianity had spread were in agreement on the abiding value of these books and they used them widely. The third criteria was orthodoxy. And orthodoxy is the criteria that refers to faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. These are the things that Jesus taught. These are the things that he taught the apostles to teach. And it is a criteria that could not have developed if people had not recognized that there were heresies already afflicting the church. See, they already knew things that weren't true. They, already, they, were, they were fighting this battle. Jesus was fighting this battle when he was on planet Earth. I mean, people don't like what Jesus teaches. We don't like it sometimes, right? Why? Ugh. I don't, let's change that. Let's... let's, let's Let's interpret that a little bit differently. It's happening today. Paul warns us of this. That it's going to happen. Uh, 
Um, Dr. Blomberg says this, there are a lot of people in our cult- culture today that still want to reject or supplement or refute the New Testament books, but a careful read through any large swath of this literature discloses this parasitic character repeatedly. There is very little chance that the books not included in the New Testament canon at any significant point in which they differ from those that were included actually represent earlier or equally viable or prevalent Christian developments than what came to be recognized as orthodoxy. There's the, God, there's the, um, there's the book of Thomas. There's, there are several other what what. Um, scholars would call Gnostic books out there that every Easter they dig them up and say, well, what about these? And the early organizers of the canon of the New Testament said, nah, there's, they're not viable. They're not early enough. Um. Uh, in, in conclusion of chapter 2, Dr. Blomberg says this, to review the 66 books of the Protestant canon of the Bible were well chosen. Jews did not err in including what they did in their Hebrew scriptures, and Christians living before the Reformation era were not wrong in never formally canonizing the Apocrypha at any ecumenical council. The Council of Trent overreacted to Luther in the 16th century. The gap between the number of votes in antiquity for even the most disputed books of the New Testament and the amount of support for any other book that did not make it in remains sizable. And almost all of the books that were supported on even just one canonical list were theologically Orthodox. Only the Gospel of Thomas, of all the Gnostic literature and apocryphal writings, was ever proposed. And even then, only one time did one person say the Gospel of Thomas should be in. The Gospel of Thomas merits close scrutiny, but after such scrutiny, it becomes clear it does not belong in the canon. The Bible is uniquely inspired and authoritative. And then he goes on to say, in chapter 1, which you'll have to read for yourself, we argued that the Hebrew and Greek texts of Scripture have been extraordinarily carefully preserved over the centuries, even if not flawlessly. In this chapter, we have argued that the books in the Protestant canon of Scripture are far more than the product of the winning factions in Christian history. While debates may continue between Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox with respect to the Old Testament Apocrypha, there are no significant debates left in any major branch of Christianity concerning New Testament books. And there is no reason to turn to the ancient Gnostic or New Testament Apocryphal text for credible alternatives. What we have in our hand today is truth with a capital T. It is trustworthy with a capital T. And it teaches us. Now, another statement that's often made about the Bible concerns modern English translations. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? Well, what about the Bible? Oh, there's all sorts of English translations of the Bible. How do we know which one's right and which one's wrong? Have you ever had anybody? If you haven't, you may likely run into somebody someday that asks you that question. We're going to answer that next week. I mean to make your heart sink just now. No, we're going to talk about that next week. Because there are battles that exist in that. And I hope that you will for sure join us. And I would encourage you, um, you know, buy Dr. Blomberg's book and read it. Study for yourself. 
Get a commentary out. Look, get an Old Testament or a New Testament Bible dictionary out. Do some research on your own. And let's all, as iron sharpens iron, learn the truth about the canon of Scripture so when somebody asks us, we can say, you know what, I do know something about that. And in my studying, this is what I have found. Let's pray before we go to communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all of the good things that we've had as a part of our service this morning. God, you, you are reaching into the world every day. You're using us to, to reach into the lives of people. You, you continue with your special revelation of your word that we hold in our hands today. I pray that you would, that you would, you would grow our faith as we, as we think about how incredible you are and how you've preserved your, wo- your word through thousands of years. And Father, now as we approach the communion table, I pray that you would draw our hearts in. That we would celebrate and we would be thankful for that work that you did on the cross for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we close with communion this morning, I want to remind us that what we do here is significant. It's not, it's not just kind of tacked on every week. It's, it's something that we need to, to think and pray about as we head into and you know, we, we celebrate communion here at North Hills on the first Sunday of every month. And, and so the last Saturday, the first Saturday of the month, that night before you go to bed, you can be thinking, hey, tomorrow's communion. As I go to bed right now, I'm going to start preparing my heart. Ask God to prepare my heart for what we're going to celebrate tomorrow as we partake of the bread and the cup. Communion is one of the ordinances that was given to us by Jesus himself and, and as a church, our commission to uphold and to protect and to minister. And we're told that its purpose is to remember Christ. To remember Christ. To remember his broken body that's, that's, that's represented by the bread. And to, to remember the blood that he shed that's represented by the cup. That is our salvation. That was the sacrifice in place of your sin and mine. So this morning, as we celebrate communion, may we be reminded of the words of Jesus that Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given it, had given thanks. He broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this morning we, we proclaim his death. You don't need to be a member of North Hills to take communion. It's, it's not about the church. It's about Jesus Christ and your faith in him. The gospel itself shows us that there's nothing that we can do apart from what Christ has already done for us. And we celebrate that as we partake of communion this morning. Let's thank Jesus for his sacrifice and let's focus on the fact that he did the qualifying. He gave us his inheritance. It's because of his grace and his mercy. As the servers come forward, we'll we'll pass the baskets and the trays down the aisle, take a piece of bread and a cup as a follower of Christ. And when you're ready, when you've worshipped, when you've prayed, when you've celebrated, eat the bread, drink the cup, 
and then we'll close together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us this reminder. You knew that we, we, we would soon forget and, and, and you gave us this. May we proclaim your sacrifice this morning. May we be thankful and may we celebrate the truth of what that has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.